0: Hello, I'm Paola, and welcome to Contemplative Revolution, a podcast by the WCCM, about what it means to live a contemplative, spiritual and Christian life while still playing an active role in the modern world. In this podcast, Martin Laird explores what the great saints and sages of the Christian tradition claim about the constant presence of God. God does not know how to be absent. We may feel God's absence, but he is always present. Union with God is not something that can be acquired, but something to be realized. This can be difficult to accept in the commodity-driven culture we live in. This podcast is the first part of a talk held at the London Meditation Centre in 2020. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Thank you as always for that uh, kind welcome. I just hope you feel the same afterwards as you do now. (laughs) Uh, I'm very happy to to be with you here this morning. Um, see some familiar faces, and uh, lovely, bright new ones. Um, basically, the day, as I, I presume, has some something like that. Uh, the horarium, the schedule, uh, which we'll try to follow more or, or less. Um, What I'd like to speak uh, today, the first talk, uh, is really always my first talk. Um, That is what the great saints and sages of the Christian tradition claim about the constant presence of God. God God does not know how to be absent. We may feel God's absence, but God is too simple to come and go. This is the implications of eternity. And with respect to the human, always present. Union with God is not something that Uh, can be acquired but to be realized this is difficult in the culture that we live in a transactional culture, culture a commodity driven culture where we are trying to acquire something, some sort of transaction. Um, I embark on this, I expect something back of it in terms that I think they should be. Sometimes a transactional analysis, or the transaction is with, um, uh, well, anything at all, but that mindset Uh, is gradually undone in the practice of contemplation it remains functional in areas of our life where it's appropriate but what happens uh, very often is these models of acquisition uh, transaction I put out this and in return I get this Uh, we transfer them to the spiritual ground of human living and they don't operate. And much of the practice of contemplation is um, I'm going to say letting go but of allowing them to fall away. So I'd like to begin in this uh, first uh, talk with what uh, really great people throughout the course of centuries claim about the, what, what they have been discovered in the process of searching for God that this God whom they seek has already sought and found them Augustine of Hippo's realization Augustine of Hippo is not Augustine of Canterbury sent to this country by Pope Gregory the you know, in, in uh, uh But a fourth, uh, fourth century uh, uh, bishop, monk, who wrote, uh, oh gosh, what we have uh, remaining of him is uh, at least 65 volumes. <laughs> um, but in his most common, most well-known, most widely read work, Confessions, he realized this of God. You are more intimate to me than I am to myself. We have a notion of sort of self, uh, a a sort of intimacy within our own thoughts, our own uh, uh, self-consciousness, which are varying degrees more uh, publicly accessible, and and those that are uh, private, secret, uh, unless the sun gets involved in them somehow, they remain private. But there is yet a deeper level of intimacy and a self-knowledge that Augustine realized that God was yet more interior. Someone really living around his own, in his own fourth century context, they actually didn't know one another uh, or read one another uh, but St. Gregory of Nyssa he writes in his homilies on song songs God dwells in you God penetrates you yet is not confined in you let's say God is Penetrating, intimately, penetratingly, uh, within, and yet uh, cannot be contained by us. For God is within, within each, and throughout the universe. He echoes the psalmist, Lord, you search me and you know me in my inmost being and knitted me together in my mother's womb as I was being fashioned in secret. But this notion of the psalmist, of being formed in our mother's womb, and known known has all sorts of meanings it doesn't here it doesn't mean no in the way i know that 2 times 2 is 4 but the way the and, and and even deeper than the way of an intuitive mother of a 16 year old boy knows when he comes in, what have you been up to? (laughs) All my students know exactly what I mean when I say that. Because their mother's all the same. They know exactly. And in fact, one of the, if if they're too late behind curfew, they bring a friend in with them. Because, you know, the mother isn't going to uh, say anything with a friend there. The grilling, you know, and then the friend goes and then the son goes off to bed and um, and ho- hopes it'll all be forgotten about in the morning. I suppose uh, daughters work the same way. But the point, this knowledge of intuition, this gets closer to the matter. But is not yet betoken this intimate knowing which bespeaks communion. Lord, you search me, you know me for you formed me in my inmost being and knitted together in my mother's womb. (laughs) As I was fashioned in secret, you notice God knits like a mother like, or grandmother knits, which in the ancient world, this was the occupation of women. I learned to knit from my grandmother. The point is. This deep intimacy that's foundational. You can no more get rid of it than you can get rid of your DNA. And you need no, you need not rec- acquire it any more than you need to acquire a head on your shoulders or tax form. Another man of the same uh, century as augustine in, uh, and Gregory, but this particular man was extremely influential on Augustine, who had quite a quite a winding youth and he came across when Augustine was living in Milan as speechwriter for the emperor, who at that time, the emperor was living in Milan. And Augustine had to write speeches. Augustine, you might not know, is the, possibly the monk, most eloquent man, well, certainly the most eloquent man in late antiquity. Nobody did with the Latin language what Augustine could do. And his job, one of his jobs, was instead of having trumpet fanfares, you would have a gifted orator as the emperor came by singing the emperor's praises. And uh, Augustine detested the emperor. And he knew that every eloquent word he said was wrong. I was going to make a wise crack about my own president. <laughs> anyway. Um, but this man, St. Ambrose, helped Augustine on very, very many levels to uh, become, well, to be, Augustine had always been a believer in Christ. He just uh, got involved in various Christian uh, sex that he didn't ultimately found disappointing but the way he heard saint ambrose preach or read what ambrose wrote and ambrose writes in his reflections on creation which is a, which was a common uh, trope uh, that's to say you know as a, as a poet has got to have a go at a sonnet or a lyrical ballad or a drama so in the ancient world you had fathers of the church writing on creation for example and he says in his commentary on the days of creation the Hexameron, Ambrose is wondering why God waited to the end of creation to create the human being And he writes, surely it is time now for us to make our contribution of silence. Silence is the contribution here. For now God rests from his work in making the world. God has found repose in the deep recesses of humanity. In humanity's mind and purpose, God finds comfort in these traits, in these traits, as his own testimony declares, in whom shall I find repose but in the human, who is humble and peaceful? From the perspective of theology, creation is not something that happened long ago. Creation is a theological term, and it means an abiding relationship in the presence, in the present, sustaining us in being, and that is divine presence, sustaining us in being. And God created the human as a place for God to rest in the deep places of the heart. The implication is the in deep places of our own hearts, the depth, dimension, the center of our being, is the rest of God and contemplation is our entering into that divine rest which rests in us and often overlooked the spiritual master of the uh, the the ninth century John Scotus Ereugena he was from this part of the world uh, uh, Britain or um, possibly Ireland but he spent his career in Rome as a lawyer uh, but also as an outstanding spiritual teacher and he was, he was very important historically for bringing many of the uh, key um, contemplative figures, their writings from the East, translating them into Latin where they became nourishment for spiritual seekers in the uh, Western Europe. Europe, Let us say, get them out of Greece into the West. And he writes in his homily on the prologue to God, uh, John's Gospel God would not have, as, uh, excuse me, John would not have ascended to God if he were not first. God that's a remarkable statement it's not it, it's, it's um, part of a, a dimension of uh, Christian doctrine called divinization um, it sounds potentially a bit arrogant but it is that we are so immersed in divine life, that we become partakers of divine life. Often, these writers say things that are a bit, bit shocking, but, but to contemplative ears, uh, they often make a lot of sense and confirm insights they have had for some time. But it never means that, say, you know, um, Brigitte becomes God and God's no longer God. But now we look to Brigi, <laughs> Which I mean, you, you could do worse. But it's about a Light sitting in light, and its realization, re-expressed in its classic uh, form by Saint Athanasius the Great. God became human so that humans might become God, What God is by nature, humans are by grace. But this is what it means to be a creature. And everybody here, I mean, they look fairly created to me. Augustine, again, provides useful insight when he states simply, you cannot love what you do not know. I present this to my uh, undergraduate students. Cannot love what you do not know, and so I'll put the question to them: How many of you enjoy plaid-flavored ice cream? And and of course they look at me, you know, as though I, well, you know, the way that, the way undergraduates do, and uh, finally you know, I said, do you, you know, uh, James, do you like plaid flavored ice cream? And he said, I never tasted it. Well, why have you never tasted it? Because it doesn't exist. And then I'll ask them, how many of you love chocolate flavored ice cream? Or vanilla flavored ice cream? Strawberry flavored ice cream? And hands go up. And I say, why is this? because we've tasted it, Father. (laughs) They long for it because they know it. Without having tasted chocolate ice cream, you wouldn't long for it. This is what Augustine means. You cannot long for what you do not know. We consider our longing or our desiring something In an acquisitional or transactional mode, I seek this, I acquire it. The deeper, more ancient insight in that uh, desire is a response to having been touched. It's not initiating or acquiring. So insofar as you long for some depth, and you might not be comfortable with any of the religious language that's used for it, it, this goes deeper than language. It's simply because you already know it. In the ground of your being it is known somehow. and it increases for our experience of it you cannot love what you do not know jumping to the from the 4th to the 14th century uh, the great Meister Eckhart God is in one of his Advent sermons God constantly is introducing light into the soul in the innermost innermost ground of our being God's own light God's self and Occasionally it spills over, he writes, into the faculties of the outer self. That means our perceptive faculties that that can be aware. And so some people do have an experience of this luminous, uh, vastness, that time does not enter, has never been wounded, does not know pain. This courses through the ground of our being, everybody's. He saying, Sometimes this light dawns from within, the light of awareness. So strong that we have an abiding sense of gazing into this great luminous vastness. And Eckhart speaks from what he himself personally knows. He writes, We are, meaning I am. I am well aware of this light, he writes. Whenever I turn to God, there is a light that burns in, guiding me. He says, We must know that the very best and noblest attainment in this life is to be silent. To be silent and let God work and speak within. This is the a testimony to the apostolic power of simply being silent. We think of apostolic work as serving society, serving Christian community in any number of ways. And he's not, he's not negating those at all. He is saying what it proceeds from or needs to proceed from. And it begins, he says, with simply being silent. And simply being silent, which is not so simple, is the best way to be vehicles of God. someone living just after Meister Eckhart, a Flemish spiritual master, blessed Jan van Roesburg. In a short work of his, The Little Book of Clarification, he writes this. Of the unity of God and the human, he says, in the same way that the air Is pervaded with the radiance and warmth of the sun or a piece of iron is penetrated by fire so that with the fire it does the work of fire burning and giving light just as fire does yet each retains its own nature the fire doesn't become iron nor the iron fire but the union is without intermediary. You cannot separate out light from air. Let me try it. Well, maybe during the break. And while iron of humanity and fire of divinity, they're one. without anything in between. Elsewhere, Reisberg writes that after sufficient preparation by grace, which would be our practice of contemplation, He says that we will flow forth and flow out of ourselves into the incomprehensible abundance of the presence of God's richness and goodness. And in it, we will also melt and be dissolved, revolve and be eternally one. This metaphor of melting, it uh, was part of his uh, poetic reservoir of words, you know. It's it, 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 um, we don't sort of work down like a candle, <laughs> there, uh, which loses then its identity of a candle. When he says we melt into God, he's talking about a radical, self-forgetting letting go. in which we discover our true identity. Discover it, not acquire it. In the same century, but in a different part of the world, in Italy, in uh, the Genoa, although at the time it wasn't Italy, it was owned by Spain, but St. Catherine of Genoa, she adds another voice to this song of union, and she's known for her startling realization of her own identity hidden in God. She tries to put words on it, and she says this, My only me is God. That's a startling statement. She looks within and can find no one there called Catherine. There's no Catherine-ness there. There's simply God. This isn't far at all what I think Paul is up to, and he says, "I live now, not I, but Christ liveth in me." The Paul, too, looked within and saw not Paul, but Christ. And this scene goes far deeper than the wandering, rovering, constantly chattering mind, which is why practice of contemplation, any contemplative tradition is going to try to draw stillness to the mind that flits constantly. Mm-hmm. To draw stillness drawing it into a process of radical decluttering. And what emerges is simply the presence of God. Deeply, deeply liberating and allowed Catherine of Genoa to um, endure much and serve all the more. She was a member of the lower aristocracy and married to um, a, wa- a wife beater. Um, and in these centuries, you know, divorce was not heard of. Um, After years of prayer, of endurance, and for her husband, he um, converted and then got him to um, use his wealth to, for, to um, um, support her orphanages and hospitals that she had set up around Genoa. But her realization, my only me is God. Now, she was well aware that she couldn't very well be walking around Genoa to every passerby and say, psst, do you know who I actually am? But this is how life seemed to her. How life seems to people who have overcome the illusion of separation from God. And realize that, like St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, our lives are hidden with Christ in God, our real life. This true self (laughs) that uh, we're so occupied with, you can never actually see because it's hidden with Christ in God. And with this comes a way of viewing people from within experiencing people from within instead of viewing people from without and categorizing people according to uh, race or accent which ways focus on how we are different from one another but when the illusion of separation is seen through there's a tremendous empathic solidarity with people and a realization that we are though many, one And it's a tremendous liberation. Teresa of Avila famously spoke along very similar lines uh, to van van book. She she's trying to explain to this to uh, nuns in her own monastery, and and it, she said, "Look, it's like." opening up the windows, uh, the blinds from one end of the uh, room and from the other side of the room, you can't separate the two lights out. Uh, She said, likewise, think of a a pool, of water, a pond, of water that is both spring-fed and water filled. You can't separate out from the pond what water emerged from the spring and what was provided by rain, fall, or rivulets feeding the pond. They can't be separated out. where in our habituated, acquisitional consciousness, trying to acquire a God, um, we seem separate from God. That God is an object, which God couldn't be an object, <laughs> over there, to be sought. Her younger Carmelite friar, uh, John of the Cross, her junior by some years, uh, he simply says it just quite straightforwardly, God, God is your center. We speak of getting in touch with our center, mm-hmm. and I mean that has a certain meaning, become sort of recollected, uh, uh, being centered, so to speak, but uh, our center is not ourselves. This innermost step, he says, is God. not in such a way that makes us God and God not God but what we think there is the furthest reaches of humanity where they leave off and where the mystery of divine presence takes up is not charted But is realized to consciousness. God is your center, he says in the sayings of light and love. And he speaks of the simplification of our prayer life. He says simply, preserve a loving awareness of God with no desire to feel or understand any particular thing about God. Because understanding something about God would be um, filtered through human images and conceptuality and so forth. it preserve a loving awareness of God? You can see our own contemplative practice, whatever it is, basically, as a holder, a container for awareness. And the more still, the more decluttered this awareness. the more obvious that this river of awareness is flowing in the river of God. Another Carmelite, a couple of centuries later, Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity. She lived a mere 26 years And she pondered what, she knew she was dying of tuberculosis, and she ponders what her role in heaven might be. And in one of her many letters she writes, I think that in heaven my mission will be to keep people in this great silence. Help keep them there. To help keep them in this great silence within that will allow God to communicate himself to them and transform them into Himself. No, again while these are her own words based on her own experience, this experience is well attested to throughout the tradition. Back to St. Augustine in the 4th century in one of his Pentecost homilies, he's talking about what it means to say Amen to receiving the Eucharist. Those of us here who are belonging to Eucharistic tradition is receiving the consecrated bread and wine. Augustine says, when you say amen to receiving the body of Christ, you say amen to who you are, and enjoins on them. believe who you are, become who you are. That is to say, overcome the obstacles. And that overcoming isn't taking something by conquest, it's by release. And the practical implication of this we see in our own practice of contemplation or meditation. When we're not acquiring anything, but just releasing into our practice. Releasing. And sometimes this releasing takes quite some time because it involves trust. And if we've been wounded a lot through life, trust doesn't come so easily. Now to two outstanding Jewish uh, writers, they add their voices to this song of union, uh, Edith Stein. And uh, who became a Carmelite nun named uh, Saint Benedict of the Cross, and the saintly Etty Hilleson, who, right in the thick of World War II, Edith Stein is taken from her Carmelite monastery in Echt, in the Netherlands, and put on the death train to Auschwitz. The Third Reich, you see, they they had begun to they were. We remember they were staying out of Holland. Um, and so many uh, um, just to speak of, of Jewish converts who in Catholic monasteries they were being siphoned out into monasteries of respective orders in Holland. And so um, uh, Edith Stein, or Sister Benedict of the Cross, her name in the monastery. Um, she was Jewish, and albeit converted to Catholicism, she was Jewish. Uh, so they knew they needed to get her out of, of Germany into Holland. And um, it was somewhat controversial. The Pope at the time, Pius XII, he was being very discreet with what he said. He did a whole lot. I mean, just in Rome, hiding the hundreds and hundreds of Jews in Rome into uh, Catholic monasteries. Throughout and the monastery I lived in in Rome for six years. There's a big plaque on the wall that my monastery held uh, house uh, 16. Uh, But he wouldn't, he was controversial for this, of not speaking out loudly enough for what he feared might happen that then Nazi high command would then go after things. Well, the bishops in Holland, uh, they weren't so discreet. And uh, called out Hitler uh, for his persecutions of the Jewish people and Nazi hi- Hitler uh, tweeted Nazi command in Holland and they went into the monasteries in Holland and Sister Benedicta Edith Stein was on their list And she writes. Before she gets on the train to Auschwitz, she writes in a hard to locate book of meditations called Verses On, a Pentecost Novena. This is her realization. You, God, You are the space that embraces my being and buries it in yourself. This deep intimacy which you did not acquire but realized. You are the space that embraces my being and buries it In yourself. Her realization of such divine intimacy accompanies her to Auschwitz, and a photograph of her looking out the window on this train reveals a most serene calm. As she beholds the affairs of life. A remarkable Jewish writer, Etty Hillison. She she she, uh, wouldn't, Jewish of an atheist stripe, she wouldn't be caught dead believing in God. Most uninteresting, professed atheist with a sharp, analytical mind. In the existence of God, to say nothing of deep intimacy, God would not remotely have captured her interest. and completely unbidden and not especially wanted Etty Hillison begins to notice something stirring within her and she had the foggiest idea what to make of it, only gradually does she begin to realize that there is a vast presence opening within her, and in her diary entry on
0: June 11th,
1: 1941, she says, "'My inner landscape consists of great wide plains, infinitely wide, with hardly a horizon in sight, one plain merging into the next.' in previous diary entries, and we know with her encounters with her psychiatrist, it was also her lover, is not the usual maintenance of bo- professional boundaries. But anyway, <laughs> they are Dutch. In- no, I'm
0: teasing
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I take it all back. Um, um, she had tremendous clutter. To work through psychotherapeutically, and as this clutter gives way, this realization that her in her interiority, which was like about here, is here, is vast. It was as though she said all sorts of spaces and distances locked up inside me which now wanted to break out to unfold into ever wider spaces and distances. She remarks in another entry This afternoon I found myself kneeling on the brown coconut matting in the bathroom my head hidden in my dressing gown which was slung over me I, I feel sort of embarrassed why? probably because of the critical rational atheistic bit that's still part of me as well and yet ever so often I have a great urge to kneel down with my face in my hands and in this way to find some peace and to listen to that Hidden source within me. The remarkable thing of this, this didn't come of her own seeking. It presented gradually itself to her from the inside. And she was embarrassed by it earlier. She was very horrified by it. Jesus, for God's sake, for all things. Eddie's voice is important for us to hear. She neither requests nor desires what begins to open up from within her. And her rationalist, razor-sharp analytical mind, in fact, resisted it, yet somehow she manages to stay out of the way. And we who practice with dedication and regularity often fall overboard by trying too hard. Eti teaches contemplatives the importance of staying out of the way. And so we deepen by way of consent by giving voice to her own small fiat, let it be. And to conclude, I don't know of any person, well, this is a literary figure, but of any woman who sings her role in the Song of Union more movingly than the character of Sally in Alice Walker's powerful the colour purple. Sally is a African-American and really having the roughest time of things by way of beatings by men in her circle But she remains this to ha- have this deep relationship with God, and she says to her friend, Sug, for "Sugar," in the American South, that that was uh, you might know someone's name as as uh, Elizabeth or Dolores, but you often just called them Sugar, and so Sugar is short for sugar, she says, here's the thing, say, Shug, I, th- the thing I believe, God is inside you, and inside everybody else. You come into the world with God, but only them that search for it inside find it. What I'd like to do in this uh, period, this talk, is um, walk through one of uh, the crucial uh, texts by an absolutely fundamentally important contemplative author of the fourth century, the desert tradition, by the name of Evagrius. Uh, Ponticus Uh, Ponticus wasn't his surname he didn't have surnames in the ancient world he was from the uh, region called Ponticus so he's either called um, well he's mainly just called Evagrius Um, but the reason he is important is that from the perspective of training the mind that is required in the practice of contemplation this is something that that modern psychology is is really not doesn't have or is developing only now well for some years through cognitive behavioral therapy and something recently called MBT Um, but Evacris knew all about it Um, in the interest of time I'll possibly leave it to another talk to uh, explain how he got to be such a tremendous master of the spiritual life is because he had his uh, he was quite a careerist and he fell off the ladder of career climbing Uh, deeply humiliating um, and he ended up becoming a monk in one of the communities of desert uh, monks in Egypt he was a, a very astute psychologist and I actually have shown these two texts I'd like to look at to a cognitive behavioural therapist who said to me, this man knows more about my discipline than I do. (laughs)
0: Because
1: the key to contemplative deepening and liberation is how to get the attention out of the world of inner chatter and chatter and talking and talking to ourselves over and over again about the same thing becomes quite a a strangulating loop of how we think everybody else ought to be how they ought to vote what really things ought ought to be and this goes on in one's head just look at a, um, um, a Fox News in the United States um... I I don't watch television here because I don't have one. But um, in noise generated by inner chatter, and the contemplative dynamic is to quieten the inner chatter by getting the our attention out of it, out of the narrative, out of the story we're telling to ourselves, talking, 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 talking. Mm -hmm. And for Evagrius, and he is, is absorbed by the traditions and you, you, you'll recognize different, you'll recognize his influence in different uh, meditative traditions. What he wants to do is teach how to get the attention out of the inner video that plays and plays and plays and plays to which our attention is riveted. He lives in, in the fourth century. Desert psychology was cashed out in the language of demons. And these aren't the, the like Reagan Blair, the exorcists, that sort of stuff. That there was they uh, wasn't like that. Um, the demons could not um, indwell the human being. This is the domain of Christ. What they could do, and rather successfully do, is to keep us ignorant of this indwelling presence for as many decades of our life as possible. Going through life with a sense of... uh, God is elsewhere from wherever I am. The sense, this constant video to which our attention is riveted, creates and maintains the illusion of being separate from God. And so how to prize loose the attention from its being embedded in inner chatter. This is what he's doing in these texts. And in the ancient world it was called the practice of vigilance or watchfulness.
0: hope you enjoyed this podcast you can subscribe to the contemplative revolution podcast and listen to your favorite podcast app in the media section of the wccm website you can also find a large amount of video and audio content on meditation thanks for listening bye bye